You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reading today is from Lamentations 3, 1 through 25. Lamentations 3, 1 through 25. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy, though I call and cry for help. He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughing stock of all people, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continuously remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. This is the word of the Lord. My name is uh, Ethan. I'm one of the pastors here at Free City. And I'm, uh, I'm thankful that you're with us tonight. Um, welcome back. If uh, many of you are students that are I've missed you for the last few weeks, and so it looks like maybe we're starting to trickle back in. It's good to see you back. I hope your break has been good. I hope you're, you've been well. <laughs> I hope your families have been, but it is good to see your faces back with us. We are a little over a week into a new year, a new year that in, in many ways we've longed for as we spent time wishing away 2020. But, but what has changed? In the little over a week, what has changed? We, we've rolled forth the last digit and we've commenced the, the next 365 days. However, everything that was present on December 31st of 2020 still looms as a cloud today and more. This week, our, our nation has been shaken once again. There are a thousand things that could be said of, of what happened last Wednesday, and, and the main thing I feel that is unavoidable in the midst of it all and is just this, that, that perhaps what we saw is a sign of the fragility of the nationalistic hope that we possess as a people. Wednesday afternoon, I, I was sitting in my office doing some reading, and I, I actually received a text message from Cody, and he said something along the lines of, 
hey, the Senate and House had to be evacuated because protesters are breaking into the Capitol building. I, I was just kind of in the zone reading, and I'm thinking, what in the world is going on? So what I do? I pulled up Twitter, and I pulled up a news feed. And as I pulled those two things up, I, I binge-watched the rest of the day and forgot all about what I was doing, probably as many of you did the same. And honestly, as I watched, and even still right now, I was, I was a bit unaware as to what to feel in that moment. At one point, I, I really was, I'm watching, I'm reading kind of some live feed of, of what's going on, some commentary. And, and at one point, I was kind of overcome with this hollow sense in my heart that I actually think was like, I think that feeling was hopelessness. And it actually led me to tears at a moment. But I I really couldn't trace it. I was perplexed, not in the sense of like, I I can't believe I'm totally surprised this type of thing would happen. I I think even to ask the questions, how, why, who, these all seemed in the moment to be somewhat answerable inquiries. And and as for me to say that, that it was completely unexpected in our nation in today's world, that that would be an untruth. The stark divisions apparent in in news streams, on bumper stickers, in yard signs, social media feeds, and armchair conversations, they've been long foretelling events of this nature. Our, Our nation is divided, but in saying that, I've given you no new information. You already knew that. But I believe it, it's, it's deeper than that. Like for those of us in this room, if you're watching online, I believe the main problem is not just simply that we have a nation that's divided, but we as the people of God are divided. I know this in part because I firsthand experience it. I've taken part in it myself. I have members in my family, I have friends that share tremendously differing views than I do in a lot of matters, and we've thought about it. We have people in our church, I I know this because you guys love social media, right? We have people in our church who, who love to stoke fires, to argue from behind the protection of a, a cell phone or a keyboard, spewing hatred, unable to detach from a device because you have to defend, defend a set of ideals. I think that we as a family, like a family that's blood-bought by the Savior King Jesus, we, we need to repent of this type of behavior. Like wherever you hang your political hat, I'm, I'm not talking politics tonight. Wherever you hang your political hat, if you trust in Jesus, your first allegiance is to him, his kingdom, not this republic. And because of that, we must be a people of truth. We must call wrong what God deems wrong and celebrate the things that God upholds we have to begin to look at life with sober minds. So friends, if you can look at the the scenes of the Capitol grounds from last week and and only see the mob, 
where you can only see the, the so-called courage of those standing with signs declaring that America is great or longing for it to be great again, I, I think we've missed the whole thing altogether. Because in the middle of the scene, there were flags donning Jesus 2020. And, and just in the background of that, they, there were gallows erected on Capitol Hill. I mean, these are despicable things. The events of the day led to the death of five individuals in the name of what? It's crazy. Friends, as we see signs like Jesus 2020, Jesus saves, in conjunction with acts like that, whatever side that might be giving it, this is not the Jesus that, that offers hope to a hopeless and unbelieving world. That's an American-born Jesus fashioned by evil human hands, and it is detestable. And it's okay to say that. Like, if you trust in Jesus, it's okay to speak of the truth of who Jesus is when the world around lies and corrupts his nature. Because our hope and our allegiance, it's not in the blue or the red. It's to an entirely different kingdom, a kingdom that speaks the light of truth into the darkness, one that stands for justice when injustice abounds. Even in the matter of the aftermath of, of the events, I think we, we do just need to consider, like, wherever we are, were on in that, if, if your people ramshacked the, the capital or those that you disagree with didn't, whatever, wherever you land there, I think we have to consider what is our complicity in these types of events. And just to take into account our own life. Like where's their mocking and misrepresentation, hatred of neighbor and welcoming of sin in our own lives. We must stop putting our hope in the disunity that political parties will bring. And we have to rightly situate our hope in the unifying message of Christ. We have to stand on truth regardless of which side it comes from. Because our allegiance is to Christ, and his kingdom is higher than anything this world has to offer. May, may what we actually observe in these moments, may, may it lead us to deeper repentance, and may it lead us to lament. You know, as a church, we talk about this often, we exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means we have to talk about Jesus, the real Jesus that the scriptures speak of, and we have to follow him with our life, the real resurrected Jesus of the scriptures. So I hope in 2020, like at some point in the chaos that happened, or perhaps at the beginning of 2021, I hope that you settle into picking up your Bible, that we would begin to like make not New Year's resolutions about just getting the beach bod and you know, eating less or being vegan or saving our money in a certain way, but, but it would be that we would become people more focused on the word of God, that we would open our Bibles. And I think if we would do so, we would actually start to see something really, really clear. We would see many parallels of what we read in the word and what we experience in our world today. 
Like if you closed your eyes and you read Jeremiah, you read Isaiah, I think you could have lots of things that tie you to think, man, this is America. This is what I exist in today. But I don't think that those similarities exist because this book is like the Bible is written to conjure up your feelings for America or because we are God's chosen people. The relatedness of what you will see unfolding in the scriptures is, is not marked by the U.S. being God's country. The connectivity of what we see in the scriptures and what we experience today is due to the nature of sin and a belief that we can exist happily apart from God. You see, we, we've made a covenant with the idea that sin does not have consequences. And this is precisely what the book of Lamentations confronts. There are consequences for rejecting God's law and writing our own. We've firsthand seen more of the outworking of this reality this week, but it's not a story exclusive to America. It's a story that dates back to Genesis 3. And consider where we are in Lamentations. I know we've been a few weeks off, but you just heard Jackie read it. As we ventured through this book, we, we realized that Jerusalem is gone. The temple, it's been destroyed, and absolutely none of this was unforeseen. God gave warnings. He warned his people, but the warnings, they fell on deaf ears, and now God's people, exiled, experience the consequence of their sin. So today we're going to talk about suffering. But, but I want to be clear about this. In the midst of them experiencing the consequence of their sin, even the, the present experience of suffering, it's grace because it confronts the lie that we can do whatever we want. We need to think about that. We need to consider what suffering might be. But I also want to be cautious when talking about suffering and not tone deaf or unaware of what's going on and who might exist in the room. Suffering is not always or exclusively a product of sin. I could point to countless stories of individuals in our church where we shed tears and there's grieving hearts. Individuals, couples, families, where suffering so regularly seems to be unexplainable. Stories where there doesn't seem to be a, a specific sin tied to a suffering, a, a sin that they've done. Maybe a sin has been done to them, but maybe they don't really have anything to repent for. And the scriptures give us accounts of this. We, we have the story of Job where we see suffering. If you participate in the Bible reading plan last year, then at the end of the year you finished reading the book of Job. Well, Job... We have to be careful of this, a side note is oftentimes Job gets brought up in suffering and we say, yeah, yeah, I'm suffering like Job. We need to be really careful of that because verse 1 of chapter 1 of Job says that Job was blameless and upright and he was one who feared God and turned away from evil. I don't know that that actually describes any of us in this room. So we need to be cautious there. But we do see suffering that Job experienced. Job lost everything. And do you think his suffering was for naught? If you read the book, he would disagree with you. God used the suffering in Job's life to create more dependence upon God himself. And, and there is another thing that 
we may, like in this lifetime, we may never get the why for our suffering. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we see through the darkness and, and we see how our experiences uh, really meant something. The dark gets illuminated. And, and an example of this would be Joseph in Genesis 50, 20, where we see the preserving nature of God's love. When, when Joseph, at the end of his life, he says, as for you, you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He's saying, hey, in the midst of all that I did, I've seen that God had something far larger going on, way more complex than anything I could have fathomed. And in the midst of that, to borrow a word from Tim Keller, he he says, God gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. So we trust in the goodness of God. If suffering is going to be a part of our lives, we have to be well acquainted with the word of God. We, we have to recount the promises of God. We must hold it high, as was our assurance, and, and Jackie even just read, Lamentations 3, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. They're actually new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. But the Lord is our portion and we'll hope in him. So in part, we're walking through the book of Lamentations because lament is necessary in our life. It's necessary first and foremost because it is an honest thing. It gives a particular structure and and a disciplined way of turning our grief over to God. It forces us to reckon with what we feel or we experience. And I, I wonder if this is why lament is so unfamiliar to us. Like it's an, an outward show of something that we so often keep inside. Our grief, our loss, our outrage, or our anger. Shaking one's fist at God. Or collapsing down in defeat and despair before God. But, but lament's not simply just an honest thing. It's also a communal thing. And this is really a crucial thing for us to understand in the Christian life. And, and, and honestly, for our family here, I think it's a, there's a potential pitfall for us. We, we often talk about, in city groups, wanting to establish a, a culture of vulnerability that would exist among us, where we would talk about the deep things of our life, where we would talk about sin and suffering. We would offer it before one another. And I'm really, really thankful to say that here in our church, in my city group, I experience more messed up people than any church I've ever been a part of. (laughs) And that's not because everyone's out like painting the town red every night, right? That's, That's because we're more honest about who we are. It's safe to live in the reality of who we are. But if we actually lean in and we confess sin and we repent, what we also have to have in that is an assuring of who Jesus is, what he's done in our place, and who, us now believing in Jesus, what our identity, where it lies, and what God now says about us. So there's kind of two parts of lament. There's an offering of what's going on, what I feel or experience, and there's a second part that that is before the God of the universe. And a 
potential pitfall for us is that we would just re- get really accustomed to, to confess where we are. To say, here's the really difficult thing going on in my life. And, and as we begin to speak those things out and we begin to name things before God, as those anger or outrage, as it leaves our lips, we actually kind of grasp for it and our hearts take a hold of it. And it leads us to bitterness. Or as we write down sadness and, and despairing things, as we write them, we see them and they're put into reality and, and we forget that we're doing this before God and we just kind of grasp a hold of it and it leads us to a bitter life. We have to be careful. We don't, we're not just on a pathway of self-discovery, but we're on a pathway of looking at the God of the universe, trusting him, hoping in him in the midst of our hopelessness. So as we speak of lament and suffering throughout the rest of this series, like, lean into this. As we even talk about the the art show, lean in, contribute in that way. Wrestle with hard things. Like, take moments, and as you inventory your life and you think about losses and hopes that are blown, shake your fist at God. I'm giving you permission. Go for it. Voice your heartache. Voice your loss, your madness, your confusion. But don't stay there. Remember in the midst of it, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. And then to to brothers and sisters sitting with those lamenting or suffering, like also lean in. The communal act of lamenting says, I'll be bothered by the things you're wrestling with and I'll shoulder these burdens with with you. So we trust God in our bewilderment. We trust God with our grief and our losses because God laments with us. And because of this, lament can bring about transformation in our life. So to take those things and say it a bit more concisely, here's the main exhortation of today's text. That when suffering comes, and it will, when suffering comes, remember the steadfast love of God. And we're going to break the text down today into two parts, two possibilities, two outcomes, if you will. One is hopelessness, and two is hopefulness. Let me pray for us, and we'll get to the text. Jesus, we confess that we are a people rattled by everything. We're thrown um, to the wind when the smallest of things happen. But, but Lord, we also, in the midst of that, we're so often rattled because we hope in the wrong stuff. We forget in the midst of, of life, the journey that we're on, we, we forget that you're actually in control of everything and you see us and you care for us. And we begin to take life and matters into our own hands and and in the midst of doing so we confess we do it over and over again but but the reality is it leaves us hopeless so would you speak to us today would you even as we sit here would you by your holy spirit bring to mind the places where suffering exists maybe the place where we've suppressed suffering or where it's happened in the past and we've just kind of cut it off and it's made us less human Would you bring it to mind? Would you speak to us about it? Would you restore us?
by your Holy Spirit and use your word to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at Lamentations 3. And start in verse 1. That's the end of that water, so hopefully that's all that's necessary. Lamentations 3. As we look at Lamentations 3, really just to situate us quickly, we're in the center of the book, and and the structure of this chapter changes from the previous two chapters and the the following two after this. Chapters 1 and 2 and then 4 and 5 have 22 verses each. It's an acrostic that's built around the Hebrew alphabet. And and here, chapter 3, the structure changes a little bit. And in your Bible, you, you probably see it grouped into triplets of verses. And really there are what we have instead of 22 verses, we now have 66. So it's still an acrostic, still the same structure, but it's kind of this repetition emphasized, like almost gaining momentum to go along with it. Another thing is the voice of the poem here changes. It's no longer an observation of Jerusalem's carnage, but it's now a first-hand perspective of suffering, and the writer adopts the first person, I. Many people would call this Jeremiah. There's a lot of confusion, disagreement on where we are. For the sake of today, I'm going to call him the writer. (laughs) The writer's testimony, it paints a picture of him residing in a cavern without light, a valley of shadow of death without a shepherd, no light, no leadership. Things are fully and wholly dark. And he writes of his experience and his emotions tied to it. He leads us and gives us a picture into his hopelessness. So look at verse one. I am a man, notice the point of view shift, who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He's made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. Now just to, to pause there for a second. Here we're given a really familiar picture from elsewhere, I think, in Scripture. Verses 1 through 13 are all kind of built on this metaphor of a sheep and a shepherd. Really common biblical language and image. And perhaps maybe more specific here, we're we're given what kind of seems to be the antithesis of a familiar passage. In the imagery of Lamentations 3, God the shepherd is the polar opposite of a familiar text, Psalm 23. He's no longer the good shepherd. Psalm 23 speaks of the good shepherd, and what does he do? He guides his sheep with his rod. He leads his sheep to good pasture and still waters. He helps them through the deep, dark, twisting valley paths, and and the, the shepherd of Psalm 23 protects his sheep from wild animals that threaten their life. And moreover, his very presence, his rod and his staff, not only protect, they bring comfort. But here in Lamentations 3, the script is flipped. The shepherd now wields his rod for harm, not for good. He forces, not leads, his sheep into dark places. He actually walls his sheep in. 
imprisoning them, catching them in the maze, cutting off their ability to find a straight path. Instead of protection, God himself takes the form of the ravaging animal, the bear and the lion, endangering the sheep. The writer speaks of the rod, God's means of hope and deliverance, but this is turned on the sheep, and he's stranded in the place of darkness and death. And look at verse 7. It says, He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He's made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry out for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He's made my paths crooked. The man describes feeling of imprisonment. He has no ability to escape, no even ability to make an appeal. He's stuck. He's walled in, chained down, and blocked off. Look at verse 8. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. The constructed walls here pictured are so thick that his cries for help can't be heard. And all of this, all of it seems to be intentional. The prison is built with blocks of stones, but the walls are not just thrown together. It's not just a piled up happenstance. It's not a DIY masonry. This is purposefully constructed, deliberately and divinely engineered. And it leaves the man hopeless. And more. Look at verse 10. He's a bear lying in wait for me. A lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. So he's walled in, led to the valley of death, not through the valley of death. And like a bear or a lion, God's judgment has mauled the rider. He's utterly hopeless and defenseless against this predator God. Till now, we've primarily understood the metaphors to depict like the, the external circumstances. That's which is going on outside of him. But verse 13, it shifts internally. Look there. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. Kidneys here is used as a metaphor for the inner life of an individual. This covers both like that which you think and you feel. For us, you know, we, we don't say, man, my kidneys. We speak of my heart <laughs> as the seat of our emotions. So this man, he's been wounded to the depths. God has pierced him to the very depths of who he is. And these arrows aren't simply physical. He's experienced psychological and spiritual trauma. But that's not all. The blows continue. Verse 14 He's become a laughingstock of all the peoples. He's the object of their taunts all the day long. His suffering is now a public spectacle. He's utterly hopeless. I think there's multiple ways to view this. It could be that now, no matter where he goes, people point and laugh. He's mocked. The voice of others reinforcing his sustained wounding. But it, it may be deeper than that more internal, if you will. 
If we look ahead and we look into verse 20, we see that he's bowed down. He's so deeply tormented. It could also be that within him, he's heard the external, but now there's an, an eternal kind of murmur within him, self-reproach, if you will, that taunts him. We all have this to varying degrees. Kind of that, and if you just did the right thing, you wouldn't suffer in this way. If you weren't so dumb or so ignorant, if you were only more intelligent or caring, if you were compassionate, the taunts of others maybe started external, but have made their way in and now rest in his heart. No longer needs their voice, perhaps, because the arrows that inflicted the pain still reside and remind of their derision. Look at verse 15. He says, He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft. It's cut off. It's deprived of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So to say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. And the descriptions keep piling in, keep piling up and continue to overwhelm. He's beaten and broken, imprisoned, mauled, shot, mocked, trampled, reeling under such battery of the injuries. And he reaches the point of total despair. And if that's not enough, he's felt it, it's inside, but another sense comes into play and he legitimately tastes bitterness miserably forced to drink the cup that, that everyone would leave on the table regardless of the extent of their hunger or thirst. The darkness of his suffering, it's so thick that he's forgotten what happiness is. His endurance, it's perished, and he has an inability to even consider the future. The external experiences of suffering have pressed and threatened persistently weighing on him to eventually invade the depths of his inner being. He's assessed his experiences, his surroundings. He's pronounced his emotions, verse by verse, building this picture. And he's utterly hopeless. Last Tuesday, in my city group, we kind of sat around and, and had a, a bit of an inventory of the year. One where we could just reflect and uh, we were leaving space to complain and, you know, whatever. But as a, as a group, we, we spent time together really recalling our experiences of 2020. And, and I think a lot of it situated more from March till now. But we sat spent time sitting around and recalling things. And, and much of the conversation actually did revolve around how we've come to view God like how we've seen him in the midst of suffering and, and how we've actually seen him in the midst of joy. We didn't sit in it long enough to get to the point of when there's sadness and despair that we, no one called him a mauling bear or a lion or anything like that. I think if we would have sat in it longer, perpetuated the conversation, it could have got to that. But as we spoke, we actually found like lots to celebrate. Individually, things like, just single people to, to celebrate what they're saying. Here's how I've seen God work in my life. We communally, like as a group, really got to see some of those moments where God lets you see 
not the end of all things because we're not at the end of all things, but he lets you into more of what he's doing and you see some kind of resolve and transformation in the midst of it all. But one moment specifically kind of stood out in the conversation. One of the women in our group spoke about the growth that she's experienced over the course of the last year. She, she talked about like really celebrating how God's grown her um, in, in what she's, like things that she's wanted to dig into that she finally has. But in the midst of growth, there's been pain and grief and, and anger and, and fear coupled with all of it. But at one point in her recollection, she said something along the lines of, and it's as though I, I now just kind of have an aversion to hope. And does that describe you? Like, has your hope dried up? Do you perhaps identify with the writer here in Limitations 3? Do you maybe feel walled in or, or crushed or despairing? Where do you find yourself? Are you hopeless? We said this at the beginning. When suffering comes, and it will, remember the steadfast love of God. Look at verse 19. He writes, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and it's bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. He says, I remember everything that's happened. I actually remember it so viscerally that it, it doubles me over. But then he remembers something that he's previously forgotten. It's God's love. And it is this that he now calls to mind. He calls to his heart. He calls to his attention, to his soul, the inner part of him. So in a similar way where the arrows previously penetrated his body, affecting him to the depths, leaving him hopeless, he recalls God's love and God's love goes deeper. And we begin to see a glimmer of hope that addresses his despondency and leads him to hope once again. We've heard the writer's hopelessness. Let's look at this transition as we see hopefulness as we close. Look at verse 22. He writes, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. It's my reward, my inheritance. The Lord is my my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. The steadfast love of the Lord. And this is the, the covenantal love of God. It's his love that's unwavering, fully and completely committed, dependent not upon the recipient of this love. Notice in verse 24, it says, the Lord is my portion. And here, portion is the, my reward or my inheritance. And here's the thing that we, we as a people, I think here in this room, especially need to meditate on. When we're hopeless, our hope is not to look for a change in our circumstances. Though a situation may be awful, it may be terrible, a transition simply to different conditions will never, ever be enough to satisfy our hearts. 
We really do need to hear that. We need to speak it to ourselves. Our hopelessness will not be satisfied when we have the house that we've longed for or our bank account has reached a certain place. A college degree won't bring it. A job promotion also will be insufficient. No elected official can bring you hope. Neither can a significant other or the birth of a child. I don't say that to wound anyone, and I realize there are so many different experiences and sadness that sit in this room and in our family, this church. But I think it's necessary because we we need to realize that all of those things are unable to address our hopelessness. They weren't actually intended or, or meant to address it. God alone can address it. And that's why the writer here, he calls this to mind because God is our inheritance. He is our reward. And God's mercies are new every morning and he is good to those who wait on him. Another way to say this is that God is good to those who wait till the morning, perhaps. And this in practice is hope. If you're a super Star Wars fan, you'll hate this quote because it's from the most despised movie in the whole group. But the late Leo Organa says, hope is like the sun. If you only believe in it when you see it, you'll never make it through the night. Those who do not wait do not see the mercy of God because new mercies come, but they don't come until the morning. So often, hopelessness is the experience necessary for us to see outside of ourselves. You work, you toil, you grow weary, and at the end of the day, you go to sleep, and sleep, rest, although it's often just a metaphor for rest because I know we got a lot of sleepless people in this room. It it is a movement to settle into the reality that you're actually held and sustained by another. There's a disorientation that's necessary to come in life before we're reoriented by the grace of God. So therefore, if you give up before the sun rises, you miss the light of God's mercy. It comes in the morning. His mercies are new each day for those who have eyes to see and hearts to receive. A few weeks ago, my family and I loaded into my truck and drove out to the dam at Clinton Lake. Our intentions were, uh, my real intentions were to sit in the middle of the dam. You know, there's that little place that pulls off and you can park there. We're to sit there and to watch the Jupiter and Saturn conjunction. You know what I'm talking about? Did anyone else go out there? Nope. Cool. Anyway, we went out there and and we, we drove across. And as we got there, we weren't the only people. That's why I asked the question because it was loaded. And uh, we drove across the dam and we came from the north side to the south. And as we got to the middle, there were no parking spots. So we continued on to the south side. And as we got there, we didn't park where there's no parking signs. Those people got kicked out by the sheriff. But there was a place to park. And so we pulled straight in, we climbed out and sat in the back of my truck under the camper shell. Popped up the back. It's like 4 p.m. And we sat and watched the sunset. 
and it was freezing cold, and we had one blanket, and Blythe, Ike, Sky, and myself are all sitting under this, and Ike is constantly fighting us for the covers. But in the midst of it, man, we saw the most beautiful sunset. It's one of those things that, like, I considered, maybe I'd throw this up on the screen, but it wouldn't do it justice, and it'd probably be a frustration, and all those things. It was beautiful. But in the midst of that, we went out there, we oohed and awed at the sun, but that's not what we were there to see. We were there to see the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, that which we had read about, the people are saying is the Christmas star or whatever, is going to be really bright and able to see right at dusk. Well, we sat there, and we sat there, and we're beginning to question, there's all kinds of other people around us, and it looked like they're all kind of just looking around too. And so at one point, I like download the night sky app, you know what I'm talking about, the one that's like, hold this up. And... And sure enough, I pull it up, and I think we're looking in the right place, and we sat there, and we sat there, and we sat there, and hours passed. And we saw the moon, and we didn't really see anything bright. So we ordered some pizza, drove home, picked up the pizza on the way home, and sat down at our dining table. And we laughed about how we went to see the conjunction, but we didn't see it. And so we begin to read into it a little bit more, and we're like, no, sure enough, it was right there. And, and we get outside, and we're kind of looking at the stars, and we see stars in the sky, but I think it, we were looking at it because we saw stars. It just wasn't as bright as we thought it was. And in the midst of it, Blythe, my seven-year-old daughter, says, maybe we saw it. Our eyes just weren't set on it. And this stillness just hit us of like, oh man, okay. That'll preach, right? And how true is that in life? Like how often do we come with expectations of, of how things should be? We devise our own plan. We set our hopes on that which we can comprehend. And in the midst of it, we don't have eyes to see. We don't have hearts to receive the steadfast love and mercy of God. Like, maybe we've seen it, but we've had a glimpse of it, but we're not set on it. We need to be reminded in the midst of suffering, the echo of, of Lamentations 3.31, if you have your Bible, you can just look at it or just listen, and he says, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So when you experience suffering in life, when you're wearied from life's journey, when you're hopeless and peace is no more, remember, call to mind the steadfast love of God. We've been given and shown the love of God through Jesus, the one who justifies us, and, and we have peace with this God, the God who is depicted as almost a warrior-like shepherd in Lamentations 3. We have peace with him because of Jesus Christ. And we, though we suffer, we, we can, because of Christ, sit in Romans 5, and we can realize, and it's because of him that we can realize that, and rejoice, begin to rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that 
Suffering does produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. We have to remember that. We have to call to mind the steadfast love of God. Look at his mercy. Each week, we remember the love and the mercy of God that is brought forth through the cross of Jesus. We remember that actually in our suffering, we don't have a God who is uninvolved or unable to understand us. But we have one who entered into life suffered agony beyond comprehension to atone for our sins so that we may have life, so that we may hope. And we actually call this remembering together. It's called communion, and and we do it as a meal to appeal to more than just our mind. We take the bread and the wine, although in this season I realize the styrofoam and perhaps grape juice or whatever is in the cup, You could actually call it the wormwood and the gall, right? Do you go there? But we put to motion and senses that which we have heard, which we know. In Jesus, you actually have a God who experiences the pain of suffering as you do. You're not alone. And in him, we have the one who drank the bitter cup of God's wrath, the wormwood, the gall, so that we might not receive the wrath of God, but we might in turn receive the steadfast love and mercy of God. If you trust in Christ, if if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we do transition into a time of communion. And I invite you to take the cup that you grabbed on your way, and if you didn't grab one, you you do have just a moment to step out and grab one um, and, and come back in and join with us. But as you peel back the cellophane this evening, Consider what's going on in your life and and invite the Holy Spirit into your suffering. Like if you are really aware of that suffering, name it, invite the Spirit of God into it. If there is repentance necessary for your suffering, by all means confess your sins to God and receive the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. But if you're suffering and you're feeling clueless this evening, then grab someone next to you Maybe someone that you've come with, maybe someone in your city group, maybe just the person who smiled at you on the way in here tonight. Grab someone and and maybe just ask them to pray for you. Begin to do the work of lament. Recognize what you feel, maybe what you've suppressed and cut off. And as you gain words, present it before God. Your lament, it might take three minutes might be resolved before you leave tonight. But it could take months or years. And as you lament, as you feel the hopelessness of your situation, don't stay there. But adopt the words of Lamentations 3. But this I call to mind. As you bring it to mind, and therefore I have hope preach this to your heart, say it over and over to your heart, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. He's my portion, my reward, my inheritance, and that's why I'm going to hope in him. 
And tomorrow when dark clouds settle again, preach to your heart again. And next week when you're overwhelmed and you're despondent, hopeless back again, grab a brother or sister who will put their arm around you and speak those words to you and walk it out with you together. And do that again and again and again and again because the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Let me pray. Jesus, move in our midst. Bring to mind where we put our hope, where we have put it, where we've been let down. Bring to mind our anxieties and fears, but Lord, bring to mind our rage. And in making us aware of it, Lord, empower us to take words and although you already know it, let us make you aware of it. And as we lament, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Speak to us of your steadfast love and your mercy and empower us with endurance to look to the morning and to trust. Give us words to our brothers and sisters to say, no, 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 keep going. Look to Jesus. I know things are so hard and I'm so sorry, but God loves you. He's for you. Look to him. He has steadfast love for you. So remind us by your Holy Spirit. Give us the communal voice to remind each other and and deeply affect our hearts. Draw us around Jesus. It's in his name. Amen.